0: Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book but also the podcasts stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Brian McCullough. Kevin Scott is the chief technology officer at Microsoft. Before that, he was at Google, where his work there was influential enough to earn him a Google Founders Award. And he was at AdMob, and he was at LinkedIn, and I believe, actually, he's the first person from LinkedIn that we've ever spoken to on the show. Today, we're going to talk about all of that, but, of course, CTO of Microsoft. We're going to get into AI and future tech and all that good stuff that Microsoft is at the forefront of these days as well. CTO of Microsoft currently. I'm pretty sure that's officially the highest-ranking current executive at any tech company we've ever spoken to on this show. My thanks to all of the comms people at Microsoft who worked for many months to make this great episode happen. Please enjoy this conversation with Microsoft's CTO, Kevin Scott. Kevin Scott, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, you uh, you grew up in rural Virginia, I believe, tobacco country? I did. What was the name of the town? I was just reading this right before we got on the air.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's this little town uh, called Gladys, Virginia. It's in uh, Camel County. And I think Gladys, uh, in 1972, when I was born, was population 250, uh, and it's still about the same size in 2019 with uh, my, was... my family. My family still lives there.
0: Yeah, I was going to write down the name because, like, that's such a pretty name for a town. I was <laughs> like, wow, that's, yeah. that sounds awesome. But, um all right, so normally the way I start out with people is, you know, their first computer or their first experience with computing. And then depending on the generation, that can range from, oh, Commodore 64 to, oh, yes, the first time I submitted punch cards. <laughs> like, yeah. Um So how about you? How did you, like, literally – first experience with a computer that you can remember
1: yeah i think i'm in the generation of folks where probably my first program that i ever wrote was the uh 10 print kevin is awesome 20 go to 10 on uh (laughs) you know some so it was probably like a commodore uh vic 20 or something like that that was in a department store attached to a uh you know little cathode ray um uh, like 13 inch TV. Um, so like this was in the early eighties when, um, you know, sort of before the, the IBM, Microsoft flavor of personal computing, but, uh, you know, sort of the, the wave of innovation that happened after Apple had invented the, you know, the Apple and, uh, yeah. So like, I, I was immediately captivated because it, it was, um, the, the other thing that was happening at the time is console arcade games had started to show up everywhere like they were in the lobbies of department stores and in you know convenience stores and you had video arcades and i uh, I just loved these games and uh, I loved these little, Consumer grade personal computers, uh, you know, mostly because you could play video games on them. And my interest in programming was uh, like, man, I really want to be able to figure out how to make my own games. And like, I've been a, a tinkerer ever since I was. A tiny, tiny little child like my, uh, you know, my mother struggled with me because I would take everything in the house apart to try to figure out how it worked. And when I saw a computer for the first time, I was like, "This is the greatest thing that I've ever seen, worthy of being taken apart and understood."
0: So, do you uh, become a programmer as a child?
1: Yeah, I did. I uh, around, um, I think it was probably twelve or thirteen years old when I wrote my first real programs and you know it wasn't like they were uh works of art so i wrote little video games i wrote uh i at one point when i was a teenager i was really into dungeons and dragons and i was always a dungeon master so i like encoded all of the rules of the dungeon master's guide into this little uh basic actually one sort of a big uh for me basic program uh, so that I could sit there, <laughs> very awkward by uh, today's standards, with my Radio Shack color computer too tethered to a you know bulky 13-inch TV, uh, you know, sitting on a coffee table, uh, totally disrupting the ambiance of the Dungeons and Dragons game with well, everybody so you, around the table.
0: You ran your games using the computer. I did. Wow, that's cool.
1: Yeah. Um, um yeah go and, ahead no and, and and i you know I think like the first commercially uh useful piece of code that I wrote is my dad uh he yeah, was a, a small scale entrepreneur he owned like a uh, a few small construction companies in central Virginia when I was little, and I wrote all the payroll software uh for him, so uh like the thing that kept track of people's time and printed their checks out every week.
0: It's surprising to me how common that that story is for for people of our generation where uh, you get your start by like like helping your 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 mom, she's a teacher, so help her do her grades or or yep. your dad, yeah. That's it's it's surprising how common that story is. Um so because we're roughly of like I'm saying of about the same age so I would imagine that um your first online experiences might have been uh, BBSs or maybe the early online services like Prodigy or CompuServe. Tell me about your first uh, online stuff.
1: Yeah, I played around a little bit with BBSs. It was interesting for us because Gladys is very very rural, and so almost everywhere interesting was a long-distance telephone call, and like we were fairly... uh, fairly, you know, on the poor end of the spectrum uh most of my childhood so I didn't have a lot of money uh to spend on telephone bills and uh like I wasn't into the you know f- uh, phone freaking stuff like uh like trying to illegally uh get yourself access to long distance circuits so you could call into BBSs that were um that were too expensive to get at otherwise um so there were, you know, some stuff that I did uh, locally, but I think the first time that I had um, like real connectivity to the broader world of people messing around with computers was with CompuServe.
0: CompuServe, of course, being the it... It was known as almost um, the more nerdy of the services, like like Prodigy was was sort of trying to be general consumer, but CompuServe was where you were if if you were into computing and and nerdy stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it had, the stuff that was on CompuServe was the, were the set of things that interested me, like, you know, by the time I was a teenager, like the magazines that I would buy at the Bookstore where Dr. Dobbs' journal and like I buy the nerdier of the computing magazines. Like I, I, I loved Byte Magazine. It was absolutely great because mm-hmm. it was, you know, in my mind, like the more technical of all of the many, many. Uh, computing magazines that were being published at the time, but like Dr. Dobbs journal was like my favorite thing in the world. Like anything that could teach me new programming tricks I was all about. And so that was most of my motivation or interest in being online at all is to connect with other people who were programmers and to sort of learn new tricks because I was always trying to figure out like you'd sort of see something in a, in a game or an application that was sort of cool. And like, I just immediately wanted to figure out how it was done.
0: So was there never any question you were you were going to go to school for computer science?
1: Oh, there were tons of questions. So <laughs> neither neither of my parents went to college, and most of my high school experience, I just or like middle school and grade school, like I just sort of hated it all. It was uh, I, I used to tell people if uh, like hell is an actual thing for me, it would be you know sort of sitting in a seventh grade classroom, uh, for eternity. Uh, it was just so boring. Um, and you know, I got lucky on a couple of dimensions, you know, my dad, um, my dad, neither my mom nor my dad went to college. My mom, uh, after she graduated high school, um, <laughs> moved from, uh, this little place in Campbell County, Virginia to uh, live with my aunt in Richmond, which is the capital of Virginia for a little while. And she went to uh, what at the time they called a secretarial school, um, which is, you know, sort of like a community college. Uh, And she, um, you know, I think went there for a year or two and then became a bank teller. And my dad uh, had been Accepted to go to college, Uh, actually the same college I wound up uh, going to, uh, uh, Lynchburg College, which renamed itself to Lynchburg University, but um, he decided not to go because he hadn't enjoyed uh, school very much either. And like immediately after he declined uh, enrollment, uh, he got drafted and, and went to Vietnam. And, you know, I think he regretted most of his life. Not going to school, and uh, you know, he just sort of walked around with a lot of uh, a lot of expressed regret about the set of turns his life had made. And um, you know, he put an enormous amount of pressure on me to go to college, and he didn't care f- for what, uh, but like he just sort of knew that like I was going to go to college and not make the same last minute mistake that he did. And so, you know, I would uh, I would work for him at his, um, uh, construction companies, uh, when I was a teenager just to have gas money. And, uh, he would give me the crappiest jobs and he would tell me he was giving me the crappiest jobs. It's like, okay, like you go run the jackhammer to break up this concrete floor in this dank hot basement of this construction project we're running or like you get to carry the shingles up the ladder onto a hot roof in the middle of august or you get to go push the wheelbarrows full of uh full of mixed uh mortar up the hill to the bricklayers. uh and he was like i'm gonna teach you how miserable uh you know that this this can be and and like I I actually don't think that it's miserable work. Like I do uh, I do a lot of stuff with my hands right now, and like I think there's an incredible amount of satisfaction and dignity and all that stuff. But like this was my dad sort of projecting uh, projecting onto me, uh, and so uh, like I I just knew that I was going to college and that, that I, I had a lot of interests, and I still do like anybody who knows me like you this this sort of looks looks at my bucket of interest and they're like oh this is sort of crazy like you're you're all over the place Uh, and so for me like I had been really interested in um, illustration and design when I was a teenager and so I thought thought for a while like maybe I'm gonna go to school to uh, become a graphic designer and uh, when I actually got to college, uh, like I had this tug of war the whole time that I was there between English literature and computer science. Like I was equally interested in both. Uh, so it turns out I was better at one, <laughs> one than the other. But like I remember getting to the end of my. Um, the end of my bachelor's degree and you know the the discussion i was having with everyone is like oh you should go get a phd in english literature and you know like this other camp of folks like oh you should go get a phd in computer science and i you know i wound up actually not going immediately to graduate school because uh i was basically tired of being as poor as i was and i went out and got a job and tried to uh save a little bit of money before i went to grad school
0: What was that job?
1: So this was, you know, one of a great many happy accidents in my life. So a couple of pivotal things happened to me uh, in my last year high school. So I got chosen to go to the Central Virginia Governor's School for Science and Technology, which was this um, magnet school that... The state ran in central Virginia, and they would take two students from each high school in, um, uh, like, in basically this multi county area. Campbell County was part of it. And so, you know, there, there were, I can't remember exactly what the number was, but it seemed to be like there were sort of, you know, 40, 40 kids or so uh, in each of 11th and 12th grade from made up from the, the top two science and tech students from all of these high schools. And so um, my friend and I got nominated to go when we were both in 11th grade, and they said they would only take one of us. And uh, my friend uh, wound up going that first year. And then the second year, um, they decided that they would take two of us and so like i got to go to the science and technology high school and uh it was like this really amazing experience and the guy who taught me computer science there went to church with this guy who um starting in the summer that i graduated high school was starting his first company like he was a. an electrical engineer and like had designed power systems and like electronic control systems forever like he was starting his company to do some consulting on that sort of work but to be a contract manufacturer to make uh, printed circuit board assemblies for um for folks who needed small runs of things you know like imagine a hamilton beach who needs you know 10,000 circuit boards for blenders or like the company that um you know, needs like a thousand circuit boards for a batch of, uh, laundromat, uh, commercial dryers that they make. And so because my computer science teacher at this high school had known, um, uh, had known this, you know, budding entrepreneur, a man named Robert Roberts, uh, Uh, Robert was looking for some summer help. So he, it was him and two people that he had worked with who, uh, you know, were sort of the, the, the starting founding team at this, uh, at this company. And like, I was, uh, I was flunky number one. And so I went in there and like, I just did everything. And it, was the thing, like I worked that summer and then, uh, they were like, oh yeah, like you can continue working part-time while you're in school. And so I worked part-time there probably 20 hours a week the entire time I was in college. And I worked full-time in the summers, uh, just to try to make enough money to help pay for school. Uh, cause my family didn't have enough money to, uh, you know, to pay, pay for my college. And, Um, and then when I graduated, like I just sort of decided to work there full time for a couple of years and it was like just this brilliant thing. Like, uh, I learned so much about entrepreneurship and running a business and flexibility and grit. And then like the really great thing is like Robert was, you know, is one of the best engineers that I have ever met, like wickedly wickedly smart and like a really great teacher which is like this fantastic gift to have in your career like just sort of being able to convey very complicated concepts to other folks and so i effectively even though it's like getting a degree in computer science uh i learned to be an electronics engineer uh at the same time working for this uh this company called uh Electronic Design and Manufacturing.
0: Well, and then for many years uh like you mentioned you go on to get your um MS at Wake Forest and but but for many years also um unless I'm wrong, you're also in essentially academic computer science, like you're a research assistant and things like that. Like um what are you what are you working on 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 the academic side?
1: Yeah, so I uh I wanted my, my my goal like coming out of uh, coming out of like that high school experience uh, I had at the Central Virginia Governor's School, like I had decided I wanted to be a computer scientist and like not only had I decided to be a computer scientist, like I was really captivated with Uh, compilers and programming languages so like i decided i wanted to be like a compiler programming language specialist and i don't know like how god's earth like an 18 year old uh, figures that out but (laughs) that was uh that was sort of the way my brain worked and you know i took a couple years off between bachelor's uh, like get my bachelor's degree and then going to grad school um but yeah after wake forest i um i started the phd program at university of virginia uh, passed my qualifying exams and started working on a uh, on a dissertation. And most of the work that I was doing there was on uh, something that sounds fairly arcane. It's this stuff that we um, we and a bunch of other people, uh, you know, had a lot of um, a lot of enthusiasm and energy around in the uh, late '90s and early. 2000s uh, called dynamic translation and so the, the basic idea is if you take a, a binary program that's running on a microprocessor um you know the, what the microprocessor is doing is it sort of like takes the the binary program instruction by instruction and sort of runs it uh you know through the uh you know the the silicon on the microprocessor to you know execute your program um, and the idea with dynamic translation is you can uh, insert a, another piece of software between the program and the microprocessor to translate translate those instructions on the fly to something else to accomplish some other purpose. So, like, you're basically rewriting a binary program on the fly. And my, my work was on... How you can very efficiently write a framework that would let you build uh dynamic translation applications, so like you can use it for a bunch of stuff like security you can use it to try to do uh dynamic optimization to sort of like examine a program's behavior as it's running and to sort of optimize uh optimize it to perform better based on those observations um and so like there's just this wide range of applications that you could potentially write but like they're very hard programs to write in general just because you're sort of mucking around in the deepest bowels of uh, you know the machine you know like at the intersection of the the operating system and you know the like the very back ends output of compilers uh and like you know the the raw instruction set architecture and uh you know like the computer architecture of these microprocessors so um the the framework that i wrote was uh turned out to actually be somewhat useful like there are a bunch of bunch of folks who ultimately went on to use, uh, use the tools that I and a, and a handful of other folks built, um, to like actually do research and and some practical things, uh, using this approach to software.
0: Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but somewhere in there, weren't you also briefly a research intern at Microsoft?
1: I was, uh, yeah, my PhD advisor, uh, awesome awesome guy named jack davidson who is like one of the real titans of uh compilers and programming languages and sort of low-level uh system software you know so he's fellow the acm he's uh um yeah like a whole bunch of the code that he wrote when he was a phd student uh influence the original design of the um, the GNU uh, C compiler GCC um, and um, yeah Jack went on sabbatical to Microsoft Research and he took me with him and like that was a super fun experience that was uh, 2001 I think.
0: And by take, take you with him like to Seattle?
1: Yeah so I went uh, he was at Microsoft Research in Redmond, and uh, he yeah you know, like the way academia works is like every seven years or so you get to uh, take time off to go do something you know different. Like you might teach at another school, you might go to a corporate research lab, uh, you might do something else entirely. Uh, you know, with the purpose of so, you know, getting yourself reinvigorated and exposed to new and interesting things. So he moved his whole family to Redmond to be at MSR, uh, to work in this little group uh, in MSR at the time called the Programming Language Systems Group. Um, and uh, he got me a, uh, a summer internship there at MSR, uh, for which I am eternally grateful. And I, uh, I packed all of my crap into the back of my uh, Volkswagen GTI, and I drove from Charlottesville, Virginia, to Redmond, Washington, and spent uh, several months there working in that research group.
0: Well, uh, how how do you get to Google then? Why why, why uh, abandon this um, academic research track?
1: Well, I at it, some Point in all of this, uh, I met my wife. Uh, so, she uh, she was a PhD student in the history department at the University of Virginia when we met, um, and we met right after she took her qualifying exams. And for she's an early modern European historian, like her specialty is 16th and 17th century German history. And as soon as she passed her qualifying exams, like, you you know, you, you start working on your dissertation. And for a historian, working on your dissertation means going to find your documents uh, that are going to be the foundation of the, uh, the dissertation that you write. And all of her documents were in uh, in Germany and, you know, sort of the German-speaking places in Europe – And so we met, she just passed her qualifying exam. She already had a date by which she was going to pack all of her stuff up and move to Germany. And like, we, uh, we fell in love and like had this quandary of uh, like, what on God's earth are we going to do now? And so I, um, I through (laughs) <laughs> what still is like seemed like an, another one of these uh, extraordinary pieces of luck that i've benefited from um i reached out to the so she was going to this town in germany called Göttingen and i reached out to the uh to the computer science department at the university of Göttingen and said like hey i'm coming to germany with my uh with my girlfriend i don't really have anything to do when i'm here um other than you know sort of spent a bunch of time sending emails back home, uh, to my advisor about my dissertation research, uh, like, is there anything to do in your department? And he was like, oh, this is great. Like we actually just started this department, uh, and like, we're looking for lecturers, uh, you're hired uh which evidently never happens in german <laughs> academia and so like i had this job uh lecturing computer science at this new uh cs department at the university of Gottingen and like it was sort of str- like i didn't even like fully appreciate uh, it was sort of strange that you know this is 2002 i guess uh so it's sort of odd to me that like the you know, the University of Göttingen didn't have a computer science department at this point because University of Göttingen is like one of the best uh, most storied academic institutions in the entire world. Like Gauss was a, an astronomy professor there, like uh, you know, Heisenberg was there. It was this uh, like incredible uh, institution. You know, I was lecturing uh, computer science at the University of Göttingen and, and you know my wife wound up my wife and I wound up staying in Germany for about a year and a half and you know we had before I even went with my wife to um, or my girlfriend at the time to Germany like I had started to get a little bit skeptical about the impact that I could have in academia as a computer scientist um, and I wasn't really happy with the way the incentive structures were working there. You know, I, I was, you know, you spend a lot of time writing, uh, writing a lot of research papers, uh, like there's this, uh, definite incentive to be a little bit incremental, like the safest thing to do is to like try to push something by 5%. It's like, you know, very, Dangerous if you're trying. You're a PhD student trying to get a tenure track job, or you're a, uh, you know you are in a tenure track job, actually trying to get tenure. Um, you know, there's a formula you can yeah you know, follow where like you go, you know, go get really good at writing grant applications and pulling in, uh, pulling in money, and you know, getting a uh, getting a research program where you're sort of going to understand uh, whether or not. You will be able to get a reasonable set of outcomes, uh, and like and that's not to say that there aren't people in academia that take enormous risks, but like the risk feels sort of enormous because, you know, if you spend, you know, as a, an assistant professor five year your first five years as an assistant professor like trying to do something incredibly bold that takes all of your resources and all of your attention and it doesn't work uh like you're in real trouble uh in terms of you know getting tenure um and so you know i was looking at this and like i, I published a bunch of research papers and um you know they, the interesting part of my, like my research even seemed like the platform pieces, you know, like the fact that I built something that made it easier for like a bunch of other people to build interesting things. And like, that was a harder paper to get published than, um, than like writing about like, okay, well, like I use these tools to like make this set of synthetic benchmarks, like some number of, basis point better, uh, than the previous, uh, you know, optimization tools. Um, and you know, so there's all of that. And I really loved, uh, teaching like that was the thing that sort of invigorated me. Um, you know, I got, I got, even got a Intel PhD fellowship at one point right. that basically gave me the, uh, like the funding where I didn't need to teach, and and in, and instead, like I decided to, I got my uh, PhD advisor to let me uh, like run a graduate seminar for the other grad students, and like everybody thought I was a nut. Uh, they're like, you know, you shouldn't. You, you just got this amazing gift where you don't have to do this annoying teaching business. Uh, you know, you you should uh, you should be like writing those last few chapters of your dissertation and like that just, it was like a bag of stuff that was getting less and less interesting to me over time. And then I was in Germany with my wife and like, she went through a real similar transformation though. You know, the funny thing with her is, um, I'm a super, super introvert. Like it's, it's, and I still am, uh, it's really for me to, you know, like, in crowds of people and to chit-chat and like, you know, I will like get to some point with these, uh, you know, sort of brownie emotions, social interactions. Uh, and then like, I'll just have to go be by myself somewhere to recharge. My wife is exactly opposite. She's like a mega, mega extrovert. So like, she will, she has to be around, lots of people and having lots of these interactions in order for her to like have energy and like the the longer she's alone and by herself like the the um you know like the the less well she is and so it was like really odd like you know ironically like you you sort of look outside versus in you say oh like historians like humanities like these people are like all you know extroverts and like that's an extroverted thing to do and like computer science and software engineering oh that's you know just sitting behind a screen and like turned out that like computer science is you know, at least in our narrow experience, my flavor of computer science was way more collaborative than her flavor of history. So she got to Germany and she was like sitting all day long in these archives uh, in complete silence, surrounded by these, you know, musty documents uh, with no human interaction. And she'd come home at the end of the day day from this and just be like, Ugh, like, miserable. And so and she also really enjoyed teaching and like we both knew that like if we stayed in academia and like you know the goal was the tenure track job at the like big important research university that uh like we were we were going to be pushing ourselves in directions that we didn't enjoy and so we got to the end of our funding the grants that were supporting us being in Germany and like we had this decision to make okay we can go apply for more stuff and like double down and you know she, she still needed to be in Germany to finish her her research so she could write her dissertation and uh, you know she went and applied for a bunch of these things and I went and looked for jobs in Germany that you know you could sort of get without Having completed your PhD, um, and you know, being being an expat, and and like we weren't in, you know, a big place like uh, Berlin or Munich or Hamburg. We were, you know, like she was thinking about, uh, you know, going to a place, and like you know, I was looking at the uh, like Fraunhofer Institute and in, uh, Fraunhofer Institute in mm-hmm. uh, Kaiserslautern and uh you know like we did a bunch of that stuff and then i was like okay well like we we should also like look at some alternatives and i sent my uh i sent my resume <laughs> uh i kid you not to google uh and i didn't even know why i, I was uh sending my resume there i <laughs> um i i knew that a bunch of the compiler people that i really respected like Urs hotzla and um, you know, who had been a PhD student of one of my, uh, my, uh, PhD advisors, colleagues. And, you know, there were folks like Jeff Dean who whose PhD work was in, uh, compiler optimization, like Alan Eustace, uh, you know, who eventually was, um, the head of engineering at, at Google was there. And like, I'd actually cited his work in my, uh, in, in complete dissertation and in like a bunch of the papers that I wrote. Um, and I, yes, yeah, so I just sent my resume and I was like, all right, well, if these interesting people are working there, like maybe there's something interesting for someone like me to uh, do. And uh, I got a call back from them and they wanted to interview me. And uh, I flew out for the interviews and they were great. They very thoughtfully—this is in 2003, so like year before the
0: IPO—and
1: mm-hmm. uh, they had very thoughtfully like looked at my background, and they stacked the entire interview slate with compiler and programming language people. And I was like having these great conversations. I mean, they were interviewing me and like asking me all this tough stuff, but like all of it seemed super fun. Um, And I like walked away from that and I was like, yeah, this is the, this is the thing I ought to go do. Like, I still didn't understand like how Google was going to make any money or Mm -hmm. like whether this was a good decision or like, you know, what, what big contribution I was going to be able to make to uh, either search or advertising but I knew that it was just a bunch of really wickedly smart people there and I knew that I enjoyed interacting with them and I was like all right like I'll give this a go and then on top of that I got the chance to be one of the first engineers like I think I was like number 10 or number 11 in the New York City office and so like that really sealed the deal. It's like, okay, like my wife and I like really like at the time enjoyed these urban settings. It's like, we, you know, we lived in Germany, like we didn't have a car, like we could walk or bike everywhere. So like being in Manhattan, uh, like sounded just great. And so that's what we did.
0: This special episode of the internet history podcast is brought to you by Sonic. We're excited to work with Sonic, the largest independent ISP in California, fighting for customers for 25 years and counting. Sonic is also giving away a first month free to listeners if you visit sonic.com slash history. I actually can't get service from Sonic yet here in New York, so I called one of our listeners out in California, a Twitter employee who is a Sonic customer in Berkeley, California, who also has, it so happens, a pretty great name. Brian, you recently uh, got Sonic... Fiber Internet, I think you switched from uh, a previous provider. Why did you switch?
2: I certainly did. Uh, I love Sonic so far. Uh, I switched because of a few things. I wanted faster Internet. I wanted to work with a, a local company. And I also really wanted a, a company that really cares about my data, my privacy, net neutrality. And those were all things that really aligned well with what Sonic has to offer what's your life
0: like now that you are using Sonic?
2: It is, uh, it was a game changer in many ways, uh, being able to stream everything I have. I do a bunch of smart home stuff too. So knowing that everything is accessible, my, uh, my upload speed is phenomenal as well as my download speed. And so, so much so that you know, I come into work and I find that the connection at work is slower than what I have at home. So, Right and, so and my, e- my home life better. Yeah. E- even
0: even though you're you're like you said, you're doing like a, a ton of like um like uh Internet of Things stuff in your home and your mm-hmm. wife is using devices and your kids are using devices, but it's all working out great.
2: Exactly. You know, no buffering, no one's complaining, it just all works super seamlessly. Uptime is phenomenal too. So
0: Again, if you want to get the great internet experience that Brian is getting go to sonic dot com slash history that's sonic dot com slash history well, and then you do um it's it's not the search side it's the ad side that you you work on right it and and the the you're saying this is a year before the iPO but also this is maybe a year or two into google have even having an advertising
1: platform yeah now it's it it had an advertising platform for a while um well right but
0: beyond the beyond the tim armstrong stuff i'm saying like this is early on in the adwords adsense rolling
1: out period this this is uh this is before adsense had uh had rolled out and like when adwords was uh like in its early days of taking off like i was part of a whole bunch of people that Google was just starting to hire in two thousand and three because that business was starting to scale up, and like they had both the, you know, the funding and the need to bring in a whole bunch of people. And so, like, I, I, I actually, uh, you know, I worked uh, a bunch in both search and ads, uh, but like my first, my first real project that I did at Google was uh, was an ads one.
0: And then you uh, go on to lead the the ad quality engineering
1: team. Yeah. I let a big chunk of the, uh, so like ads quality was the team at Google that built all of the, the stuff that effectively like ranks and filters ads. So it's like the CTR prediction stuff and, you know, which you actually have to have for a, uh, like a second price auction to work, you know, when you're, when you uh, when you selected a set of candidate ads, uh, like you actually have to like predict what the likelihood that someone is going to click on them in order to uh, and you multiply that by the the bid price to basically a, a, you know along with the other uh, participants in the auction to figure out what the what the ad ranking is. So like you've got these big system for doing ctr prediction which is like economic an economic necessity and then like a whole bunch of other things like you know when when should an ad not show up in the auction because like its quality is too low or um you know when are people trying to play like uh low quality arbitrage games uh in the system so it's like a whole bunch of stuff that this team did and like i ran uh i ran a big chunk of it i didn't run the um i didn't run the team of economists and statisticians that were also mm-hmm. technically part of the team i worked for a guy named uh mike Fromkin, uh who like uh actually ran the whole uh, ads quality team and mike is awesome like he's like one of the best bosses i've ever had just an incredible guy
0: um AdMob, so yes. I think you're I think you're at Google the first time for a little maybe under four years even um, three three years or nine months I believe okay okay uh, so uh, what interested you in AdMob and and why head over there
1: um you know I I've, <laughs> I I tend tended at the time and I like I still do like I I've I spent a lot of the time thinking about what it is that I want to accomplish and over very long periods of time. And then I I try to make a plan that helps me get there. And so I had spent basically from age 17 through age like 30, 31. And like my entire goal in life was to be a professor. And when that changed, I needed to get a new plan. And so I was at Google for about a year and I figured out that maybe the thing that I can be good at that lines up with my interests is not just being an engineer, but helping other engineers uh figure out how to do their best work and how they can make an impact in the world and how they can uh achieve their own goals and career ambitions. So like, you know, it started because I was in I was at Google and uh we yeah we just had all of these brilliant people there and you know we were hiring folks so fast that we didn't always have this prescriptive thing to tell them to go do and like we gave people a bunch of freedom about what they chose to work on and so I thought okay like I might be it might be worthwhile for me to help people point themselves at things that are going to like be at the intersection of like what's going to produce value for Google and like what's going to align with their interests and expertise. Like that's sort of the, you know, the sweet spot, uh, you know, so to speak. And like, I've been, you know, lucky that, you know, the thing that motivated me to go into industry in the first place was, like, I wanted to do something where I could scratch a whole bunch of technical itches, but, like, in a way where, like, it was going to have measurable impact, and so, like, I decided at that point that I was going to become a manager, and as soon as I decided that I was going to, lead teams of engineers, like what I wanted to do was like, look, you know, my new goal is to be the head of engineering at like a big internet company. And I knew that there was no way that I was ever going to be the head of engineering at Google. And so to me, like I, I was at Google and like, I, I tried to expose myself to like everything humanly possible to like help me have skills to, um, you know, and, and pattern matching and coping mechanisms for, uh, for being, um, the, the head of an engineering group, like the person with whom the, you know, the buck stops and, you know, who like has the, you know, the whole accountability for, uh, you know, for, for an engineering team. And, uh, like, I got comfortable at some point, and I was like, okay, well, now, like, I I want a head of engineering job, and I was like, okay, I think I can probably go get one at a startup, and I looked around, this is in 2007, at, like, all of the interesting things that were going on, and I was like, oh, this is, like, a, like, this is an interesting thing, like, I'm, I'm sort of, jumping into the frying pan like there's a whole bunch of stuff about being a head of engineering at a startup and about startups themselves that i probably that i know that i don't understand but like at least i understand advertising at least i uh i understand um you know how to lead an engineering team this size because like i'd led bigger teams at google and like when i got there it was like about 10 uh 10 people in the engineering team like i i knew from just a Yeah. Leadership perspective, I could handle that. Um, And, you know, like I could um, I I could basically that would give me enough of a buffer where I could sort of learn quickly all of the things that I didn't know how to do. Um, And I knew also just because like i had been sort of seeing some of the momentum in the mobile ecosystem, I knew that this was going to be an important thing. And like the problem that we were trying to solve at AdMob, like really, uh, really spoke to me. It wasn't that like, okay, like, let's go put some little irritating rectangular boxes on a small screen. It was, uh, you know, if you'll sort of remember back, uh, like I joined, <laughs> i joined AdMob before the iphone had really launched like it had been announced but right. like not uh not launched and like our entire business at that point were um text ads uh in wml applications and like almost all of the you know running up to this uh the way that a uh, mobile application got distribution is like they had to cut a deal with a carrier to appear on their deck. Uh, so like this sort of like home screen for the phone. There's no,
0: no app stores. Those things don't exist yet. No, yeah.
1: none, none of that. And you had, it was sort of like this major impediment to innovation happening because you know, there were all of these chicken and egg problems, like, you know, Carrier is not going to talk to you unless you've got, like, some credible business story. And, like, a whole lot of the great ideas that have happened in mobile over, you know, the the intervening years, um, you know, start off and, like, you can't really prove that they're going to be the, the success that they are. So it was just like this like innovation really couldn't happen as fast as it needed to. And so AdMob was all about like, how can we give application developers a distribution mechanism where they can find an audience for their apps and services that they're building? And once they have that audience, like what's a mechanism we can give them to monetize it? And so it was basically about us trying to figure out how to deliver those two essential ecosystem components uh, so that innovation could happen. And like the thing that felt really great about AdMob is that, you know, we had this point, uh, you know, a few years after I started where, you know, like it was just the crazy fastest growing thing I've been part of. Like the business was doubling at this ridiculous doubling interval uh, and like a whole bunch of the you know the mobile uh the mobile companies that were getting funded at that time like their you know their their monet monetization part of their business plan and their pitch decks was like ad and like that was great like we were sort of doing exactly uh exactly what we wanted to do and it is awesome like the team that we had there it's uh you know the peop what the people have gone on to do is sort of awesome so my uh my uh, Director of Engineering there is now the CTO at Instacart. Uh, Cheryl Dalrymple, who was uh, um, our CFO, was a CFO at Polyvore, and she's the CFO at Confluent right now, which is this ridiculously successful company uh, that is uh, you know sort of bringing the whole notion of uh, streaming data systems and real time, uh, real time analytics and processing to the whole world, um, based on Kafka. Um, you know, Jason Spiro is like one of the, uh, big, uh, advertising executives at Google now, uh, Omar, the founder is, uh, like a great investor at Sequoia. I mean, it's just, you know, and, 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 you know, like Kamakshi Srinivasan, like, uh, uh, one of, um, you know, one of the incredible, uh, you know, data scientists, like she had a PhD from, you know, Stanford and double E, um, information theory, uh, like she's founded this company called drawbridge. Like, it's just like that team punched way above its weight as <laughs> so I'm like way, way prouder of all of them than, uh, you know, like what we were able to do, uh, do for the ecosystem than, uh, than like a great many things that I've ever done in my, uh, in my life.
0: An ad mob mafia, as it were. <laughs> like, yeah, like the PayPal right. mafia, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead to LinkedIn. Yep. Um, you're the first person I think I've talked to uh, from LinkedIn. Um, so a really basic question, um, you know, you've worked at, at Google and Microsoft and ad so startups, all sorts of things. Uh, just how, how is LinkedIn um, unique or like even from a cultural level? Describe, describe to me um, LinkedIn.
1: Uh yeah, LinkedIn is I mean like look, I'm I'm highly biased because uh, you know, I I I joined LinkedIn when uh like in twenty eleven before the IPO and like my job was to like build that engineering team into, you know, like a, a big thing. It it basically was the the job that I had been looking for for a very long while, like head of engineering at like a important, uh, internet company. And so like, I'm super biased about the culture because like, you know, sort of the culture that, you know, my, the, the, leaders and great engineers, uh, there, uh, you know, in like this sort of full cooperation with, uh, you know, with Jeff and the rest of the company, uh, like it's just sort of the place that we wanted to be. And so, um, you know, we, <laughs> one of the one of the things that we focused on a lot is um uh, you know LinkedIn's business like never had the like gigantic margins that some of the other big companies had uh but like we had many of the same like technology challenges so like we were sort of scaling at this incredible rate and you know huge amounts of data and and so, you know, like, you take those two things together, like, we had this, like, crazy need for focus and prioritization. And so, one of the, like, we, we just sort of designed, uh, you know, designed a culture around uh, us being able to get the best possible technical and product outcomes that we could get from what always seemed to us like a constrained number of resources. So like collaboration, for instance, is like super important in an environment like that. You just cannot afford to have people working at odds with one another, duplicating a bunch of effort, uh, you know, like trying to, um, you know, sort of advance their agendas through these sort of parallel and competing paths like you just really have to get people to come together as a team uh and to recognize that the most important thing is for the entire team uh like not to think is like you know sort of a random confederation of um you know, slightly warring tribes but like you know you're one team. You're one team at 250 people. You're one team at a thousand people. You're one team at three thousand people, and like you've gotta always keep in mind the top level objective that you're trying to accomplish, and like be willing to play your part in accomplishing that objective, even if it means locally suboptimizing what you're doing for some period of time. And well, I think, and you know, I I, I've, I
0: saw. just specifically to this, I saw there's a a business week article and a business insider article that essentially say to the level of like, you institute a code freeze at some point that they say in these articles, like essentially saved LinkedIn, as they say, maybe that's hyperbolic, but like you had to come in and, and do things to such a level that like, look, we got to get our eggs in order if this, if this company is going to move forward.
1: Yeah. Look, we, (laughs) um, I don't know. Yeah who saved like i it's no one individual ever saves anything like that's just madness uh to think about but the thing that we did know like we were in a precarious situation when i joined the company in 2011 like we had uh you know we we had a bunch of different product and engineering silos that weren't working well together um and like we had a um we had a software development infrastructure that basically couldn't support our ambition. So we were, you know, it, it was just all kinds of craziness. Like we, uh, you know, at some point we decided to go to a service-oriented architecture, which is like a great thing. Like, you know, service-oriented architectures mean that you've got things sort of, um, you know, factored into a set of uh, units that have independent scaling uh, characteristics. So like you can... You should be able to operate them independently of one another, uh, like scale them independently of one another, and like they're you know like small enough where they you know have some sort of uniformity about them that let you you reason about them uh, like as a isolated thing, not necessarily in the context of the whole. But like we you know we'd sort of split this thing up into a thing where we had more services in production than we had actual engineers. like the services outnumbered the engineers, uh, and they weren't independent of each other. Like you couldn't deploy like one service independent of the rest. And yeah, so there was that. like we were doing this uh, like feature branch based uh, development, and like we were we, we would release the site like all of these services in like one big bang like once every two weeks yeah so when i started like i think it was wednesday like every wednesday night like you would expect that you know 100 plus people were going to spend all night uh like getting the code that uh you know that they had slammed down onto this integration branch and spent the previous you know like multiple weeks trying to qualify you know you would then push this thing out into production and like you'd have these handwritten deployment plans like on wiki pages where it's like you do these hundred and ten steps to deploy everything and there invariably in each one of the deployment plans there'd be some point where it's like, all right, this is the point of no returns. Like we can't even like fail all of this back if it doesn't work. Like if we have a problem after this, like we're gonna have to fix forward. Um, And it's just, you know, I could go on for like a really long time sort of describing like all of this stuff. But like the net of it was that it was taking, um, when I got there, up to a month for someone to check a piece of code in to the time that it showed up on the site. And that period was increasing almost as a function of the number of engineers that we were hiring. and. You know, when I started there, like the IPO was imminent and so like we were just in this quandary. It's like, look, you know, we gotta keep growing the business, like we've got all of this ambition, like all the things that we wanna build. It's getting harder and harder to build them, not easier and easier. And like everybody, all the engineers, like, you know, uh are super frustrated with how painful all of this is. They know that it doesn't need to be this hard, uh, but like they couldn't figure a way to like get out of the trap, and uh, you know we we knew for sure that if we didn't have a credible plan for how we were going to fix it, that six months after the IPO, when the lockup period expired every good person was going to leave uh in short order and then like not only would we be busted we would lack the capability to fix ourselves and so like there was like a huge amount of urgency you know so like that Cove freeze like where i basically said no new product development for uh you know for a couple of months at the end of uh at the end of 2011 like that sounded to like a lot of the you know the the people at the company like a really huge and risky thing, but, like, I was looking at the, you know, the, the the real risk was, you know, getting ourselves permanently into a state where, you know, like, we, we couldn't build software. And so, like, to me, like, it wasn't that hard a decision to make. Um, and, you know, like, we got things fixed, and, you know, th- this is also sort of the hard thing of going through a big transition like that. Like, if you have tried to fix a thing multiple times and failed and like one of the big impediments to actually making a credible and successful attempt at fixing it is giving your team the confidence that the next try isn't going to be the same failure that the last ones were and so like we had to do a bunch of stuff to like help people feel like yeah we're really going to do this like this is going to this is going to work this time and that you know maybe out of all of it was the hardest thing because like technically like what we needed to do was sort of obvious um it was like just getting everybody together and you know sort of pulling in the same direction uh that was the you know sort of the challenging part in the end and then you know like you you sort of you know we we did all of this in november and december like we you know like we literally at some point in you know end of november early december like we had burn down the old, the, the, the bridges to the old way of doing things. Like we, we couldn't build code anymore. Uh, and you know, that was a, that was a nerve wracking moment. Uh, but like we spun everything back up in January. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't perfect, uh, in the beginning, but the foundation was in place where we knew that if we continued to invest, uh, that like we actually could get it really good like really quickly and you know we were yeah more or less a completely different uh, a completely different company in terms of engineer happiness and software development capability and product velocity by the middle of 2012 and if we hadn't done that like we we would have been in real trouble, I think. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over,
2: which helps her improve her skills.
0: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your
2: weld is. Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact.
0: Well then that, that brings us to present day because then the acquisition brings LinkedIn to Microsoft, brings you to Microsoft, and in my notes. I was gonna ask you, you know, why take the CTO job at Microsoft when when it's offered to you? But now, talk having having spoken to you, I think it's pretty obvious. Like this is the chance <laughs> to create the culture, the engineering culture, the the ability to empower engineers to do great work at like the the biggest scale imaginable, right?
1: Yes. So I'm I'm glad that that seemed because that's exactly it. Um, it it scratches this amazing um, itch that I have just in sort of terms of curiosity. Like I just, I've never had um, a better higher bandwidth learning opportunity than the one that I've got right now, just because we have so many brilliant people working on such a crazy breadth of things. Um, There's so many impactful things happening across like forget about microsoft but across like the entire technology landscape right now you know like we're having you know just sort of moment after moment where you know like it's not only is technology like having this like incredibly uh large impact on everyone's lives i think people are sort of feeling the impact uh more and more in places that they didn't anticipate feeling it and i think you have to, yeah, there's just this big responsibility in making sure that um, you are lining up all of those opportunities for tech to do interesting and great things with a real need to make sure that those those investments are serving people well. You know, like the, the thing that I really loved about what, Satya's done at the company and like he's done a bunch of really sort of amazing things, but like just simple things like reframing the mission of the company uh, as empowering every individual and every organization on the planet to achieve more. So like that sort of entirely lines up with my worldview. Like I think technology is a platform that should fuel other people's creativity other people's ambition other people's uh you know desire to make businesses to you know like change the way that they're doing things improve their lives uh and like i really do believe in this thing that bill gates said like a whole bunch of years ago which you know where he defined a platform as like a thing that produces far more uh economic value for the people building on top of the platform than it does for the people who built the platform um so i you know i think there are things like ai for instance where like that's how ai has to go like ai has to be a platform for other people to build on top of that benefits them more than the you know than the than the companies who are building the ai infrastructure themselves like just has to well um, yeah yeah go ahead right. Yeah, so, so I, 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 well, think, I, uh, I was
0: going to say, like, you know, to, to wrap it up, I, there's so many things that that Microsoft is doing that we could uh, talk about, but I, I let's do focus on AI like as a lens to talk about what Microsoft is doing right now. Like, I, I I heard you say that there's almost this palpable excitement about the progress that's currently being made in the AI space right now. Like all of these years, we've been told it's right around the corner. It's right around the corner, and it almost feels like the, the corner is now and it's being turned.
1: Yes. I, I think that's that's becoming increasingly obvious. I mean, for some of it, like I, uh, you yeah, know, the stuff that I was doing uh, like years and years ago, like my very first project at uh, uh, at Google was a machine learning thing. It wasn't an incredibly sophisticated machine learning thing by today's standards, uh, but it was an ML thing. And you know, I've been doing this long enough now to just see from a developer's perspective how much easier it is today to build machine learning things than it was uh you know how long ago was that like 16 years ago now um 15 16 years ago i mean just it's stunning stunning like some of the some of the things that you know were just like incredibly expensive time consuming heavy lifts uh like way back then like you can imagine uh you know like a high school kid uh you know doing on a weekend at home i mean it's just you know just sort of crazy the amount of power that the ai platform is already putting into the hands of folks and like the you know there's i think sort of it i mean like i shouldn't even be using the word ai because like it's almost a junk word right it's not like ai is one thing it is like a yeah you know, sort of an umbrella term for a very very large uh, number of you know sort of super specific things but you know if you're thinking about machine learning uh for instance as uh you know this area of activity inside of uh inside of the ai umbrella um you know there's sort of two interesting buckets of things going on right now so like i think the tools have gotten good enough where you've got a larger and growing population of practitioners have access to these tools and are, you know, sort of out there sort of filling in this long tail of, you know, the the AI possibility curve. You know, so it's like these little applications that solve like really meaningful problems in like this incredible diversity of contexts. And you know, the interesting thing there is like how do you make that population, you know, expand, you know, where it was, you know, maybe hundreds or thousands of practitioners doing real, uh, you know, like commercially impactful work 15 years ago. And now maybe it's like, you know, large tens of thousands of people, but, you know, like, you know, still like probably way more elite than it needs to be. Like how can you get that to be hundreds of thousands or millions of, of, developers who like have these machine learning techniques as part of their repertoire. And then like the exciting thing, uh, like on that push is how do you use the, the tools of machine learning themselves to allow people who actually don't have any programming experience at all to build things. Um, so we bought this little company called Loeb, um, a while back, uh, last year. And like the, the thing that Loeb did and is uh, working on right now, they're sort of pushing towards, uh, like having a open beta that everybody can sign up for is like, it's a simple enough machine learning development interface that you can use to, to build machine learning applications with no... Uh, no programming expertise and like let me let me give you an example uh mm-hmm. which I, I i give to everyone so one of the um one of the founders of Loeb, uh mike mattis is a designer like very very good designer um you know he was, worked at apple worked at facebook was, was like yeah, one one of the first like i think maybe the first designer at nest uh yeah, just brilliant, brilliant designer. But like, he's not a, a programmer by training. He lives in this uh, off the grid house in Marin, and uh, he's got a uh, a big water tank that buffers uh, water for him. Uh, like, he's solar powered, so like, I think they use uh, uh, solar generated electricity to run a like a well pump. Uh, But, like, you got to move the water into the tank so that at night you can use water uh, yeah, because you don't have electricity to run the pump. Um, And so he wanted to build a web app that would tell him how much water is in this tank at any point in time. Now, like, I'm an engineer, and the way that I would go solve this problem is I'd put a bunch of sensors in the tank. Like, I'd, you know, figure out, like, what the mathematical relationship is between the sensor output and the water level i write a whole bunch of code like i'd put a raspberry pi out there i'd you know uh you know i like connect it up to some like complicated like internet crap i write the web app like i just do like all of this stuff and like it's a perfectly you know, reasonable uh you know software or electrical engineering sort of way to solve the problem. But like the way that Mike solved the problem with Loeb is uh, like, I think way more approachable and intuitive. So he, he took a float uh, and tied it to a rope uh, through the rope over the end of the, over the side of the tank and tied a weight to the other end of the rope. And so now he's got this thing where um, and yeah, it's, it's like a little more sophisticated than that. Like there's <laughs> probably a, pu- a pulley in there, but like that's sort of the, the basic setup. And so like now you've got this thing where the weight, as it moves up the side of the tank, it means that the float is lower and the water level is lower. And when the, uh, you know, when the weight moves down on the side of the tank, it means that the float is uh, rising and there's more water. And so he pointed a webcam at it and uh you know got a stream of images coming out of it, and then fed the webcam stuff into Loeb, and then like went in and made some manual measurements that corresponded to a handful of those images, and then pressed a button and Loeb spits a model out that gives you a uh like a a water level from the stream of images coming from the webcam and so like that is way more intuitively approachable than like all of the crap that I had to stuff in my head over the course of like many 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 years uh, in order to solve the problem like the engineering sort of way and so you know and and Loeb is one among many sorts of tools where you're using the whole paradigm of machine learning and machine learning itself uh to sort of optimize some of the things in the back end to be able to empower people to, you know, I don't even want to call it program, but like to develop software uh, who like just haven't had any access to that superpower before. So, like, that's one thing I think that's interesting about AI. And then the other thing that's really interesting is. It's almost like the uh, other end of the spectrum is that, like, there are just some remarkable breakthroughs that are happening right now on uh, reinforcement and reinforcement learning and unsupervised learning, where um, we're able to basically remove some of the constraints that slow down the rate of progress for training. AI models Uh, so like the the constraint right now for like all practical purposes is like how how are you going to get enough label training data for uh, supervised or semi-supervised machine learning systems and like how are you going to get enough compute to uh, like train over large volumes of uh, training data with like models that have very large numbers of parameters, and so what what folks are doing in some of these uh, in some you know, mish- reinforcement learning and unsupervised learning research and actual applications are removing that data constraint, uh, that l- label data constraint, and so you know you think about some of these stunning results that um, folks have had in uh, strategic gameplay, you know, like uh, AlphaGo beating the, you know, the mm-hmm. world's uh, you know, greatest Go player or you know, the the OpenAI's DotaBot, uh, you know, beating uh, you know, beating folks at Dota um, and like even recently there have been like a bunch of breakthroughs in natural language understanding that are based on unsupervised learning. Like both of these buckets of things are Leveraging the fact that you can build bigger and bigger and you know increasingly interesting models by just being able to apply more compute to the problem, um, OpenAI's got this brilliant thing that they um, you know like this brilliant and insightful insightful is probably the the better adjective uh, blog post that they published last year where they sort of show this uh, progression of the amount of the number of petaflop days that have gone into training all of these remarkable AI models uh, yeah, going all the way back to 2012. And, you know, like they, they sort of plot this out and, you know, like we basically each step in um, the progression of, you know, these awe-inspiring results are coming along with like an order of magnitude increase in compute power. And so, you know, it's exciting because I think this, uh, you know, increase in computing power is, like, going to continue to come for a while. And, you know, so I think both of those things uh, are, like, maybe the two most interesting things happening in AI right now from just in terms of, like, what I think is going to produce interesting and useful things for humans over the over the next, like, let's call it, five to ten years.
0: Well, a final question, because I think this is what I derailed you on that you were about to tell us about. Um, so final question, how should we think about Microsoft's efforts and ambitions in all of this stuff? You know, AI is the catch-all phrase in general. How should we think of what you guys are doing is different than what, say, other companies are doing in this space?
1: Well, I think, you know, the the thing that we're doing is... Yeah like we we started we started as a platform company like building software that you know enable more computing in the world um but more computing was not really the 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 interesting thing like what people did with the more computing was the interesting thing and so you know like we we really do like through this through this mission and through like all of the businesses that we're running right now, like we see ourselves as a as a platform. Like we build things that help people to you know achieve the things that they're trying to accomplish in their lives, uh, and like our you know our business model aligns directly directly to that you know like if you have an ai workload that uh you know that you want to run uh you know some interesting ai application that you want to build like you know we have a cloud like we've got a bunch of ai tools that we build uh like you know we we're giving you the capability to go uh build some of those things and you know and it's like whether it's um you know, Azure ML or it's uh, Azure IoT or whether it's, you know, Power BI for, you know, doing your analytics and visualizing your data or it's uh, Microsoft Excel that you're using to, you know, build your models to understand how your business works or to run your business or, you know, even if it's productivity and collaboration, like we we build tools that help you get your stuff done. Um, And like, I think, like, focusing on, uh, like, just sort of empowering folks is really, uh, really sort of the exciting thing for me, because, like, I think that's, you know, ultimately, that's what technology has to do, like, if you think about all of the, you know, the, the, all of the, you know, I don't want to sound overly grandiose, but, you know, like, (laughs) the, the, you know, sort of, technology and the progression of human society sort of go hand in hand you know like we don't we don't have the world that we have today and like you know we can't support our uh, like way of life uh, without like this progression of technologies that we've had starting you know with fire and agriculture and you know the, the printing press and uh, you know industrial manufacturing and electricity and refrigeration and you know it's like you some sometimes i think we just sort of uh take a bunch of these technological things for granted because like we become so dependent on them uh and like they're so integral to our lives that they fade into the background and like you know we just sort of assume that you know they're they've always been there and they're always going to be there and you know i think they're you know, like we sort of imagine, you know, our future, um, you know, it's almost a certain thing that uh, technological advancements that neither you nor I have fully conceived of or could even possibly imagine are going to be the things that are, you know, sort of receding into the, you know, the background and are sort of the default assumptions for, uh, you know, like our, kids and grandkids and, you know, subsequent generations. And so, you know, like being a, you know, being a facilitator for some of that, I think is, uh, you know, like it's, it's, it's a huge, uh, huge responsibility. Like I think, you know, technologists in general, like ought to be thinking about like, you know, how to, and it's not us, like we're not building the future. Like we're building pieces that other people should be using to build the future, (laughs) So that that's uh that's sort of how I think about the the world and like what we're doing at Microsoft.
0: Hey, since this is a podcast, uh, should we mention your podcast real quick?
1: Sure. Um. So I um I've been for several months now recording a, a podcast called Behind the Tech, and um it <laughs> it's actually sort of a similar idea to you know what we've been talking about all along. Like I I get the opportunity to work with and talk with and collaborate with all of these interesting folks who are behind the scenes, uh, like behind this technology that we're all in, increasingly using and, you know, dependent on and curious about and skeptical of, uh, uh, you know, like they, these are the folks who are building these things. And uh, like, I just find it inordinately interesting to, hear their stories and uh you know this, this is a podcast that like talks with some of these people uh and um you know it, it what's always surprising to me is and this is like one of the primary reasons that i started doing this podcast is there you know there's a certain uh archetype that i think we all have in our head of like what a you know what a technologist is or like what a you know what a silicon valley entrepreneur or a technology industry entrepreneur is uh and like it's remarkably homogenous like that archetype and like when you actually go talk to the people it's like they've got so many backgrounds and like they've come from so many different uh different places and different um you know life histories and they've had so many different journeys into their careers and you know like none of it's none of it's linear or predictable uh you know in, in a certain way and like that to me is sort of like the fascinating things like anybody can be a technologist like anybody i think can do great things uh like using tech to like make uh make interesting stuff and like we the podcast is about talking to those people about that.
0: well kevin thank you for coming on this podcast and sharing uh your journey as a technologist with us
1: well thank you so much for having me this is was a, was a fun conversation i really appreciate it
0: if you like what you've heard on this episode please support us by subscribing to the podcast So you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold, How the Internet Happened. And if you weren't aware, I host a daily tech news podcast every weekday that comes out at 5 p.m. In that show, I tell you what happened that day in the world of tech. It's only 15 to 20 minutes long, and it's great if you love tech news. Search your podcast app for Ride Home to find the show. It's called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Thanks.